Hello, and welcome to a special festive edition of Breakfast in the Ruins. Actually, it's special for a couple of reasons, one of which is that this will be going out on Michael Moorcock's birthday, the 18th of December, when he turns 80 years old. But it's also my partner Phil's birthday, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you will remember Phil from our introductory episode, when we discussed the reasons why I wished to do a Michael Moorcock-related podcast. Now, of course, I did explain during that episode that I was put onto Moorcock by my granddad, and my granddad on my dad's side, who we knew as Pops, or Popses, we, we, we would refer to uh, my nana and granddad as Nana and Popses, which is, I don't know if it's a whole thing, or it was very specifically an our family thing, but anyway, I digress. So Pops would hand all of these books down to me that my uncles would also read. They would pick them up at markets and... He would uh, take them on and they would get to me well-thumbed. And I think I've mentioned before that The Warlord of the Air and Stormbringer were the first two Michael Moorcock books to cross my path. And I loved them. They were brilliant. I'd already been reading things like um, Robert E. Howard and some slightly less salubrious uh, fantasy fare, such as the John Norman Gore novels, which... I believe at the time didn't really float my boat, but thinking back now, they were appallingly misogynist and um, deeply unpleasant in some ways, um, despite the fact that they seemed to sell very, very well in the 60s and 70s. And uh, But I gave up on them quite quickly. There was the, I think I read 25 EC Tub Doomerest Saga books. Can't remember any of that. And there were various other bits and pieces as well. And Pops was... Uh, a rather interesting character, and thinking back, it's his love for science fiction and fantasy, and particularly pulp science fiction and fantasy, was quite unusual, given that he was very much a man of his time. So in the 1970s, early 80s, when I when he first started handing these books over to me, he was already well into his 60s, possibly his 70s, and was very much an old-school World War II veteran. Didn't like any kind of modern music, only really liked westerns, didn't even like science fiction movies because he found them all deeply disappointing. Before he died, I took him to see Independence Day when it first came out, and I thought that I would strike gold. Taking him to see, my grandma had died by this point, but I took him to see Independence Day to get him out of the house. And we came out, and he proceeded to list all of the reasons why he thought it was a load of old garbage, not, <laughs> not least because of uh, how he thought the science was um, uh, not particularly well worked out. So make of that what you will. But he was an interesting character. But I do, I owe a lot to him when it comes to him forming really my formative years of developing my imagination as a young'un. Now, Michael Moorcock was obviously at the forefront of, of all of these authors that I was reading, and he really did leave uh, an indelible impact. So much so, in fact, that now at the age of 47, I'm doing a podcast about him, so evidently he did leave a mark. But the really great thing about doing this podcast has been that it's put me in touch with a variety of people via social media who share that deep love of Michael Moorcock, or at least share the same experience of having him had such an impact on their view of the world, but also fantasy and science fiction of a genre. And of course, these days, probably just about everything that Moorcock did has now become a trope. 
of fantasy and science fiction. So possibly to modern readers, he may not have quite the same amount of impact. But it is interesting to note on Twitter that there are a number of people who are just really getting onto him now and are finding him as fresh and exciting as I did as a 13 or 14 year old. And of course, the other great thing about doing this podcast is it's led me to revisit these books with friends and talk about them and talk about their qualities. And that's great because I've really found that Moorcock has stood the test of time. And even though, and we'll get to this in future episodes, perhaps the stylistic changes to his approach to certain characters, particularly with the revisiting of Elric in in the 90s and the 2000s, whilst I don't think some of those are quite as successful, it's only because he was able to lay that phenomenal platform of world-building and character-building and that entire mythos around the Eternal Champion that, of course, he can go back now and he can do whatever he wants with those characters because, by gum, he's he's earned that right. I may not like them quite as much as the, early th- the earlier stuff, but then that probably is more down to the fact that Pops, <laughs> very successfully, I'm sure unintentionally, um, created my view of, of the world and, and what fantasy should be. But of course, he, he, he altered my view of the world in a number of ways, not least of which because despite the fact he was a World War II veteran, like most of our granddads back in those days, probably with undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, he was an absolutely fascinating character. And I only really found out how just how fascinating after my nana died. And that was the point when I found out all sorts of things about him which I didn't previously know, which to some degree explained perhaps why he had such an outlandish taste in books compared to other people of his age back then. He was um, a smoker of opium in the 1950s as a way of dealing with his, uh, his, his trauma. All the while he was working at uh, Ace Electric in Hull as an electrician. And as a youngster, I found, probably a couple of years before he died, that he engaged in spirit writing as a teenager. And then later, this might be something to do with the opium, by the way, um, he practised astral projection, or so he claimed. This is all absolutely fascinating to a guy at the time, probably in his early 20s, who evidently had known his granddad since he was born. And to him, his granddad, like nothing but brass band music, playing his organ in the front room, sitting in his rocking chair, making his own ginger beer, drinking pot and lemonade at Christmas, and having uh, a generally quite dry sense of humour. To find all these things out a little bit further down the line were absolutely fascinating. So perhaps that explains why he had such a, a radically different taste in literature, perhaps to his, his closest um, contemporaries. Because I think at the time, Michael Moorcock was probably, I think it's fair to say, more in the realms of the hip and the psychedelic and the more counterculture people. But who knows, there must, perhaps there were a whole host of grandads and 60 to 70 year olds who were rapaciously devouring Michael Moorcock's novels. And I know he was, as well as lots of crap as well, (laughs) as I found when I was handed these books down. However, 
it's an absolute pleasure to be doing this podcast and a pleasure to be doing this podcast in the run-up to Michael Mocock's 80th birthday. And if you are interested in hearing the great man himself very recently, well, I do heartily recommend checking out the Appendix N podcast interview with Mocock, posted only a couple of weeks ago at the time of recording this. It's fabulous, and it's a great example of how, although there is that old adage, don't meet your heroes, I think the chaps on Appendix N podcast are quite happy to admit that meeting that particular hero was a pleasure because he sounds like an absolute top bloke. Anyway, back to this episode. So, it's Michael Mocock's birthday, but it's also my partner Phil's birthday. So, we're going to pop down Derry and Tom's roof garden, we're going to have a read of something, which is yet to be determined, we'll see when we get there, and then we'll have a chinwag about it. So, in the meantime, please do stay tuned, and uh, we'll get back to you after these messages. Hello, this is Robert. Um, I go by the handle of Menion on Twitter, and I'm a long-time fan of Michael Moorcock's work. Firstly, I'd like to wish Mr. Moorcock a very happy 80th birthday. I read my first Moorcock books in the late 80s when I was about 14, and they had quite a profound um, effect on me, and possibly one that remains with me to this day. Prior to that, I'd only read Tolkien, Lewis, Eddings and various derivative fantasy novels. Although I don't remember the exact story, one of the Ericozzi novels really blew me away back in the day. It challenged my young mind philosophically for the first time, rather than talking down to me and stringing me along. Instead, it engaged me actively and made me think about myself others, and the world around me. In the character of Elric, Mr. Moorcock presents us with an unsympathetic protagonist. He is literally inhuman, his people having abandoned their better nature millennia ago. We join this character in a series of tragic events that show him gradually abandoning his race, his culture, and his gods in search of what it means to be a simple human being. Mr. Moorcock's pulp was paradoxically simple and complex at the same time. Like a Mandelbrot set generating repeating patterns, his eternal champion's multiverse always had something new to offer. And rereading the books all these years later, I'm discovering that my teenage self was captivated for all the right reasons. So anyway, here's to Michael Moorcock. May he enjoy many more peaceful days and wonderful insights on this strange planet of ours. Happy birthday, Mr. Moorcock, all the way from Germany. This is Michael from Germany. I'm a contributor to the Bibliophile Adventures podcast and I'm currently reading your wonderful book, A Nomad of the Time Streams. It has taken me embarrassingly long to get on board with your multiverse, but thank goodness I did and I hope it's not too late. Uh, your books are 
helping me through this terrible time in our nation's history. I am English, uh, as you might have guessed. It is a dark time, and I'm grateful that you sent us uh, Oswald Bastable from the past <laughs> to the future and back to the 70s and now <laughs> here again to uh, be our companion in this crazy time and to help us get back to a more honest and simple way of looking at things. Thank you for all the work you've done and uh, here's to many more years. Cheers. this is on. Hey, hey, Mike. Uh, this is uh, Jason. I was a pastor in Southern Illinois, now in West Virginia, and uh, used to interact with you on the miscellany about a decade ago. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I have a few things to say to you. The first off uh, is long overdue. Um, monument to Temple. Ha, see what I did there? That game we never finished uh, it was left hanging, and now I think you're in half nip. That's Mornington Crescent in three moves. And if you pull that Dallas Hill stunt again, I'll show you, Spoon. Stupid Finsbury rules. All right, second, uh, happy birthday, Pard. Uh, one of the, uh, absolutely one of the greatest gents on planet Earth. Uh, and, and not just an amazing writer, but a wonderful human being. And thank you for being you. Never change. Um, you're, you're the best. Uh, and number three, thank you. Um, thank you so much for Jerry Cornelius and Ask Weol and the Ghost Worlds and Clan of Klingar and Oswald Bastable and Corum. Um, most of all, thank you for Elric. Um, not because he's my favorite character, but because he's the most relatable. Uh, at, at my darkest times, when things were miserable, there was always Elric who had things worse and who had a terrible soul-sucking sword that he had to keep in check and he could unleash it upon those around him or he could learn to keep it in check with, with the help of Zarozinia and Rakir. And he's relatable because we all have that, don't we? We all have that despair that wants to suck at the souls of others and, and take it out on other people. But if Elric could get through it, I could get through it. And... Honestly, he saw me through some of my darkest times. Uh, he was a he was a companion that sympathized, and I think that that's why I enjoy Elric so much. Um, thank you for all the wonderful characters for Multiverse and and all the all the great, but but especially Elric. Thank you for Elric. So, um, yeah, next drink at the Terminal Cafe is on me. Uh, keep scaling to Tainlorn, Pard, and uh, thank you for everything. Happy birthday, and uh, have a good one. See you around. A message for Breakfast in the Ruins from Osako So. Um, both thank you for your excellent podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. And also in commemoration of Michael Moorcock's birthday. Um, Moorcock's novels were a, a huge influence on me as a teenager. I remember saving up and buying the small Alric paperbacks as I went along and um, 
reading the Coram and Hawkmoon novels um, from the local Hereford Library in my lunch break and taking them home. Um, what inspired me at the time was, I guess, a couple of things, really. One was the anti-heroic narrative. So in comparison to other things I was reading at the time, the fact there was there was tragedy, there was complexity um, in, the, in the stories. Um, but also, I guess, with a, lot, like, with a lot of people, the figure of Elric as a somewhat nerdy um, young, young teenager, um, I found the idea of uh, heroic, mighty heroes difficult to stomach. Maybe the fantasy was a bit too strong for me to, to, to take. I couldn't see myself as a Conan, but I could see myself as this sickly, anemic, weak figure who was uh, propped up by uh, alchemy and herbs and then ultimately by a, a demonic sword um, to become a great hero. And I guess that's what appeal, is appealing about Elric, the kind of difficult decisions he makes to fulfil his um, ambitions and, and, and dreams and the complexity of that. So I think what Moorcock gives us, although he is somewhat seen as a kind of pulp swords and sorcery writer, is that he brings some very strong modernist themes into, into his work. The idea of, of these uh, difficult human emotions, the uh, ultimate um, unhappiness and difficulty of, 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 of life and choices, and um, how one navigates that. So um, happy birthday, uh, Mr. Moorcock. Thank you for all the, all the great work you've given us. And thank you to breakfast and everybody to the excellent, excellent podcasts. Welcome back. I'm here with Phil in Derry and Tom's Roof Garden, although technically we're not actually in Derry and Tom's Roof Garden, are we, Phil? Not today. Not today. We're in um, the Bagdale Hall Hotel in Whitby, although we are certainly in the mind space of Derry and Tom's Roof Garden because we're recording Absolutely. a podcast episode. Yeah. Now, of course, last week or the week before when somebody tipped me off on Twitter that December the 18th was Michael Moorcock's birthday, the penny dropped with me. What a coincidence. That it was also my birthday? Absolutely. Your birthday. You share a birthday with Michael Moorcock. Who'd have thunk? And I'm now doing a podcast about Michael Moorcock. So here we are on your birthday. We've just had... A delicious three-course dinner, nice bottle of wine, nice cocktail. We're having a rest on our leather sofa. We've got our feet up, and I'm now recording us to do content <laughs> for my podcast on your birthday, which you know some may feel perhaps is a little bit <laughs> selfish, perhaps. But what do no. you think? No, it's not selfish. Good. I mean, it's a good way of honouring his birthday. Yeah. Um, who'd have thunk? That when I started doing this podcast, we found ourselves here two months later celebrating your birthday and also Michael Mocock's birthday. And of course, yeah. we've just had some contributions from some of the Twitterati and, and, a couple, and one of our patrons saying what Michael Mocock actually means to them and contributions from around the world, from Japan, from Germany, from Virginia, home of John Carter, who of course would have been um, one of Michael Mocock's earliest heroes because he was a massive Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. Oh. Ah, yeah. I think he was when he was 17, he was editing Tarzan Monthly, or whatever the magazine was called, as a very, very young man. So oh, he, fantastic. And Mocock's first, or some, some of Mocock's earliest sojourns into fantasy yeah. um, were Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars pastiches, where he had his own character, Michael Caine, of Mars, which uh, at some point we'll get around to covering yeah. on the podcast. But 
seeing as you share a birthday with Michael Milcock, who on earth else might you share a birthday with? Well, ones that I know of, lovely and talented Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, ah, man crush. One of my man crushes. <laughs> who else? And Casper Van Dien. Ah, man crush number two. Oh, really? Well, he's quite handsome, isn't he? Johnny Rico from Starship Troopers. Yes. Yeah. And an amazing film. Yeah. Ah, uh, there's also, in the acting field, do you have Ray Liotta? Ray Liotta. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe not so much a man crush. Yeah. Katie Holmes, one-time wife of Tom Cruise. Uh, but not actually Tom Cruise. No. Uh, well, his, birthday, his birthday is on the 3rd of July. Right, okay, so, so I share a birthday with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Well, who would have thunk? Um, anyway, enough of that jibber-jabber. We have some more contributions from um, some of our friends of the show. And a brand new patron, David, from California, says, Michael Mocock truly opened up the boundless possibilities for creativity and imagination in fantasy like no other before or since him. And fantasy and science fiction in general owe him a massive thank you and recognition for his substantial contributions. Happy birthday, Mr. Mocock, and many more to come. So thanks for that, David. Very, very grateful that you took the time. Uh, another one, Anthony Piconti, one of our Twitter friends. Michael Mocock, my sincere thanks for providing us all with an infinity of worlds to explore, along with a wonderful cast of characters. Your works have given me countless hours of reading pleasure. Wishing you a happy birthday. Sincerely, Anthony Piconti. And last but by no means least, one of our first patrons, Fred. Now, Fred was going to record something, but he's uh, sent me some text to read out. It would have been good to have something read out, or to have Fred's contribution read out in some kind of New York cabbie accent, but I'm not Dirk the Dice, so I'm just going to read it out in my Hull accent. I was asked to send birthday greetings to Michael Moorcock. Unfortunately, between my job as a telephone interviewer for government servers, which has left my voice wrecked, and the recent passing of my mother-in-law, I have not been able to prepare a recording, so I'm sending these words to our host to pass on. I think my first encounter with Mr. Mocock was Behold the Man in the appearance in Nebula Award Stories 3. I was lucky in that our town library always bought the Hugo and Nebula collections, as well as annual collections like the Orbit series, so I got to experience new authors like Zelazny and Le Guin and Ellison and Moorcock while living fairly poorly and without access to bookstores or magazine shops. Thank goodness for the library system. Behold the man blew me away, even as a Roman Catholic. Blasphemy? No, an addition to critical thinking. Somehow my faith survived and my thinking continued to expand as I read more and more. The next big encounter, other than occasional story, would have been around the time of college, spotting that big omnibus of the Cornelius Chronicles in an Avon paperback with that wonderfully garish cover by Stanislav Fernandez. Every now and again you read a book that messes with your head. Jerry Cornelius certainly messed with my head. Elric and the rest of the multiverse is probably my largest experience with the works. I encountered volumes here and there, but it wasn't until the Berkeley books sets with the wonderful stained glass-like covers of Robert Gould that I saw how everything worked together. Coupled with art encountered here and there by Michael Whelan and John Picaccio and others, and along with the various iterations of the role-playing games and adventures, you have hundreds of hours of enjoyment. Whether it's an essay on Sexton Blake, or London, or fantasy, or a fantasy about the struggle between law and chaos, I cannot thank Michael Mocock enough for all the time that I've enjoyed exploring his creations. Many happy returns. 
Thanks for that, Fred, and um, our commiserations on your loss. So, some more lovely birthday messages for Michael Moorcock there. Very nice. A lot of people really respect him and have and he's helped to develop their interest in really interesting sci-fi and also the different works that he has produced. Yeah, well, that's, he certainly did that for me. We had a, a, a bit of a discussion, didn't we, about what story potentially we could cover for, for his birthday episode. Yeah. And after much to and fro, we actually decided <laughs> on a non-Mocock story because... What led me to Moorcock, as I've talked about previously, was um, the books that my granddad gave me. And I'd already read things like Robert E. Howard, uh, the Conan stories and the Solomon Kane stories and Bran McMahon before I even got to Michael Moorcock. And there is a definite lineage. Robert E. Howard is in the DNA of the Elric stories and all of Moorcock's other fantasy output. So I thought it would be interesting if we tackled, just very briefly, one of the earliest Conan stories, just to take a look at them and see where, if anywhere, the similarities lie. So, in by no means a ridiculously prepared and advanced way, we've both brought copies of The Tower of the Elephant, and we're going to sign off for a few minutes, by a few minutes I mean probably an hour or so, and we're going to read The Tower of the Elephant, and then we will reconvene and have a discussion about what we think about Robert E. Howard. Absolutely. Yeah. So, It'll be a first for me. Hmm. So stand by, folks, and we'll talk to you again in a while. And we're back. And we've just read The Tower of the Elephant. Yes, and I really, I have to say, I really enjoyed that for a first... Robert E. Howard attempt. Yeah, so uh, y- your final birthday present was being asked to read The Tower <laughs> of the Elephant in your birthday hotel. But let's let's uh, let's see what we thought. Let's see what we made of it. Fortunately, it's quite a short one. But the thing that struck me as soon as I picked this up, and when when I was I was looking through the centenary edition of the Conan Chronicles um, and looking for an appropriate story, and I just happened to open the page where The Tower of the Elephant starts and the very very first paragraph. And I read it and I thought, that's the one we're going to do. Number one, it's short enough for us to do. And number two, it opens like this. Torches flared murkily on the revels in the mall, where the thieves of the East held carnival by night. In the mall they could carouse and roar as they liked, for honest people shunned the quarter, and watchmen, well paid with stained coins, did not interfere with their sport. Along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, Drunken roisterers staggered, roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where wolf preyed on wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women, and the sounds of scufflings and strugglings. Torchlight licked luridly from broken windows and wide-thrown doors, and out of these doors stale smells of wine and rank sweaty bodies, clamour of drinking jacks and fists hammered on rough tables, snatches of obscene songs rushed like a blow in the face. As soon as I read that, I thought, oh, it all came back to me why I loved Robert E. Howard so much when I was like 13 or 14, because it's so vivid. And the interesting thing is, if you pick up an early Elric book from the early, or short story from the early 60s, that could be the opening to an Elric book. They're so very similar. And I'm not saying that because I think Mocock was in any way derivative, but I think he was probably, or maybe even definitely, influenced 
by these sword and sorcery stories, and he's admitted himself he was very likely influenced by Robert E. Howard. And in the Appendix End podcast himself, he admits that he well, he doesn't admit he says quite plainly that he was reading Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber and Edgar Rice Burroughs. So he's very much influenced by this. And this is a great opening to, to Conan. And also, I think anybody who's played anything like Dungeons and Dragons or any fantasy role-playing game, if they could introduce their players to that environment with as much flavour as that opening paragraph that describes them all, I think people would be absolutely delighted. Strangely, that was one of the things that I thought and wrote as a note, just to remind myself, was that opening not only was very colourful, as you've read, and set the scene, I think, very impressively, but I could see it, feel it, smell it with his description. Sometimes when you read books from the descriptions, I find very dull and I switch off and I want to get back to the action. Whereas I think with this, and it's only 25 pages, he wastes no words and in a page and a half, he totally sets the scene and I was there in it. It's pure, unadulterated flavour. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah. And so we get this description of a bar and there's a, a, a royster doister who's at the bar giving it the big I am, talking about what he's going to do and he's tapped on the, the shoulder by someone who very quickly is introduced as Sumerian so we know we know it's going to be Conan. But there's this terrific introduction to Conan which I think actually is quite a good indication of how different Mocock is from Robert E. Howard in this description. A touch on his tunic sleeve made him turn his head, scowling at the interruption. He saw a tall, strongly made youth standing behind him. This person was as much out of place in that den as a grey wolf among mangy rats of the gutters. His cheek tunic could not conceal the hard, rangy lines of his powerful frame, the broad, heavy shoulders, the massive chest, lean waist and heavy arms. His skin was brown from outland suns, his eyes blue and smouldering. A shock of tousled black hair crowned his broad forehead. From his girdle hung a sword in a worn leather scabbard. Now that's a not, not that's not a Moorcock hero. This is the mighty feud, rough hewn barbarian um, that made Robert E. Howard so so famous. Uh, you know, unfortunately, posthumously for the most part. But Conan is almost described like uh, an Uberman, almost. He's immensely strong. He's blue-eyed. Um, is is Ian Elric? Is he? No, definitely not. No. And I also find it interesting that from that point they talk about him as a Barbarian as well as the Sumerian. Yeah. But also when they talk about the other people who were civilized, like this man in the pub, they were actually not very nice people. No. <laughs> he, no. he he was very quick to take the piss out of him and laugh at him and cajole him. To be honest, I'm not surprised he killed him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a brilliant passage as well, which is very very typical Conan, which explains his frustration with civilisation. So this uh, this coffin has mocked him openly in this tavern. He's laughing at him. The Sumerian glared about, embarrassed at the roar of mocking laughter that greeted this remark. He saw no particular humour in it, and was too new to civilization to understand its discourtesies. Civilised men are more discourteous than savages, because they know they can be impolite without having their skulls split, as a general thing. 
He was bewildered and chagrined, and doubtless would have slunk away abashed, but the coffee and chose to goad him further. So Coden's got this this absolute frustration that if somebody winds him up, he can't just smash him in the face with his axe because civilization doesn't permit that. And he sees it as civilization's weakness because it causes civilized men to be dickheads. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what that man was. Yeah, yeah, man it's, was. It's absolutely brilliant. If, if if only in 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 this time we could have Conan as the leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> We are so not going to go into politics at this moment, but I do understand your reasoning <laughs> because there are so many people, civilised people, who are coming up with such ideas which yeah. basically are based around their own yeah. want of power and Yeah, more. absolutely. Pursuit of power. Yes, um, what, what we need back is a couple of those MPs who are prepared to run down onto the floor of the Commons, grab the mace... And start swinging it around the reds. And I don't think anybody's maybe done that since Hesseltine. Um, <laughs> but that would be nice. So yeah, Curran's Kirk, got this thing about about civilization, civilized men, and ultimately this guy winds him up. They both flash the steel, and there's a massive melee. And in the darkness, when everybody rushes away and candles get pushed over, essentially Conan does this guy in, and probably well deserved. But you know, a bit ruthless, perhaps. It is, but strangely, now you've mentioned politics, how this man behaved towards Conan reminds me of listening in the House of Commons when people <laughs> are trying to talk yeah. and are being heckled. Yeah. And it winds me up just listening. Yeah, so if someone goes, we should be able to cross the Commons floor and shiver <laughs> with with a dirk. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. Is that what I'm saying? But what I'm saying is, I understand how people get you understand frustrated. The temptation. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. trying to put words into my mouth. <laughs> I understand where Conan's head, Conan's head yeah. was when he had that interaction, yeah. and why, when the lights happened to go out, he took what he saw as the best option yeah. to kill the man. If you diss me, leave. I'm gonna run you through. Yeah, leave. yeah. But I, I didn't feel. Any feelings towards that? Yeah, I think this is one of the appeals of fantasy, isn't it? That that whilst we are civilised people, we're both public servants. Yes. We're both nurses by background. Mm-hmm. There's still that tiny part of the back of our brain that says, this guy's taking the piss out of me, I must cut out his entrails. <laughs> and, and I think that is quite appealing as a fantasy. So that, I, mean, I think that's why these kind of stories are so enduring. It's but a, when it's written as vividly and as brilliantly as Robert E. Howard or Michael Moorcock, well, it's just it's irresistible. And this is it. You're putting yourself into the story. Like I said, they've set it really well. And when he did it, I wasn't cheering him. I went, he deserved that. <laughs> and moved on with him in the story. Yeah. Well, Loz and I discussed when we were uh, reading The Dreaming City, um, is Elric a villain? But... You would never think that about Conan, despite the fact he's literally just butchered a guy in a pub for taking the piss out of him. It seems to be on the acceptable side yeah. of, of hero, anti-hero. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so he, he leaves this pub and, you know, naturally, he decides to sneak off through the night uh, naked, pretty much. He dumps his clobber. He's got his loin cloth on. <laughs> yeah. So chapter two starts, the lurid lights and drunken revelry fell away behind the Sumerian. He had discarded his torn tunic and walked through the night naked, except for a loincloth and his high-strapped sandals. He moved with the supple ease of a great tiger, 
his steely muscles rippling under his brown skin. There's, yeah, there's, Robert E. Howard had a really, really um, excellent way of describing huge, rippling, graceful man. <laughs> but I think... Yeah, but even he describes his clothes down to the high strap sandals. Yeah. I pictured it yeah. again. I think, unfortunately, chapters like this are almost entirely... To, sorry, passages, paragraphs like this are almost entirely to blame for the fact that decades of Marvel comics always portrayed Conan wearing really little more than a loincloth <laughs> or a fairy nappy. And fair around his Yeah, his occasionally, if, he's, if he was in the snow, he might have a wolf fair <laughs> on his shoulders. But for the most part, he was naked. Um, which isn't necessarily the case in the stories, but, you know, comics is comics. We'll talk about comics another time. Anyway, when, while in the pub, Conan found out some information about the Tower of the Elephant and the Heart of the Elephant, a magnificent jewel. So Conan thinks, right, the time is right for a tower heist. I'm going to go and do it. So Conan sneaks into the, um, over the outer walls of the Tower of the Elephant, finds a dead guard, and very quickly realises he's not alone. And in fact, there's another thief there. Taurus. Taurus. The Nemedian. The Nemedian. And this, this, is, this happens a lot in Conan, and it's actually one of the core tenets of Murkoch in that our hero will come across a companion... And very quickly, almost with very little forethought, they'll go, hey, let's adventure together. And off they go. Yeah. Um, and, and this is an excellent example. And um, I'll just, uh, once again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out the introduction to Taurus. The Sumerian lord his sword. I've heard of you. Men call you a prince of Thebes. A low laugh answered him. Taurus was tall as the Sumerian and heavier. He was big-bellied and fat, but his every movement betokened a subtle, dynamic magnetism which was reflected in the keen eyes that glinted vitally, even in the starlight. He was barefooted and carried a coil of what looked like a thin, strong rope, knotted at irregular intervals. Who are you? he whispered. Conan, a Sumerian, answered the other. I came seeking a way to steal Yara's jewel that men call the elephant's heart. Conan sensed the man's great belly, shaking in laughter, but it was not derisive. By Bell, God of Thieves, hissed Taurus. I had thought only myself had courage to attempt that poaching. These Zamorians call themselves thieves. Bah, Conan, I like your grit. I never shared an adventure with anyone, but by Bell, we'll attempt this together if you are willing. And just like that, they're travelling companions. This is the stuff great games and role-playing games and stories are made of. Who gives a shit about backstory of people? You know what, they've met, they both have the same thing. They both got swords, they're both larger than life, they're both massively competent and, and heroic and magnificent, so they adventure together. And also, you could quite easily create a backstory of Taurus because he's the king of thieves. Yeah. So, you know, he could have some great adventures. Yeah, very interesting. Well, and also, I pictured him... When he calls him uh, a big belly and fat, I yeah. didn't have him massively fat because of the escapades he was doing, but I did have him fully clothed, strangely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the things I actually loved about things like this when I was a teenager was, of course, it's absolutely... Conan isn't really that relatable as a physical figure because he's a paragon of physicality and everything else, whereas I was a fat nerd. But he's he has that seed of... If anybody fucks with you, you smash the first in, mm-hmm. which is great. Everybody can identify with that. But these other 
additional characters like Taurus in this, or Valeria in Red Nails. All of these, all of these incidental companion characters that he has are all vivid and different. And I like the idea that a big fat bloke can be an awesome thief and nimble yeah. and all this business. It's 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 brilliant. It's it's relatable and and it appeals to me. And you do later question his openness and honesty of let's become a team when he goes go and look around the walls and, oh yeah and i'll yeah, and, and right. i'll go in here yeah. and shuts the door yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get to that but we never really found out what his intentions were there do we no but was, I... was he going to turn villain we, we we never really find out but we'll get to that in due course sorry am i going too far no ahead? no no it's cool taurus and conan proceed together to the second level where they're first lions Taurus dispatches him with Powder of the Black Lotus, which pops up quite a few times in Conan novels, and we'll, oh, we'll see it again and again. Um, but there's this brilliant description. So he's, he's killed them with his powder, and Conan's quite impressed with this, with this mystical and terrible power. And he says, Why can you not slay the soldiers in the tower in the same way? And Taurus answers, Because that was all the powder I possessed. The obtaining of it was a feat which in itself was enough to make me famous among the thieves of the world. I stole it out of a caravan bound for Stygia, and I lifted it in its cloth of gold bag out of the coils of the great serpent which guarded it, without waking him. But come, in Bell's name, are we to waste the night in discussion? So it's like everything in Hyboria is an adventure. <laughs> yeah. And while we've got no background on Taurus, just his description of how he's got the Tower of the Black Lotus could be another 25-page yeah. short story. So everything is littered with depth and... Layers within layers of story, it's it's completely wonderful. And there's there's a bit on the following page, the rope. Because he's spent several weeks working out what's going on and finding out more about it, that's why he's like, yeah, well, I can tell you all these stories, but quick, we need to move on to the next stage of this. Yeah. yeah. But yes, the rope, I really love that section. And in fact, I'll... Is it all right if I describe it? It, It's written as woven from the tresses of dead women, which I took from their tombs at midnight and steeped in the deadly wine of the upas tree to give it strength. And then I believe because of that, it could carry three times Taurus's weight. Yeah. So, So once again, he's just referring to his equipment. He's talked about his powder that he's used with the lions and told a story about the powder. Now he's telling this extravagant story about uh, the rope in his pack. Either everything to that man is a, a complete and utter adventure, or he's a massive bullshitter. But either way, it makes for really, really impressive, vivid storytelling. It's just great. And in that way, it's not bullshitting because him and Conan went up the rope together. Yeah. And it held their weight. Very true. Those dead ladies' tresses did Absolutely. the trick, Absolutely. So they penetrate the tower... It's full of gleaming jewels. Everything's encrusted in jewels. It's basically like a disco tower. And at this point, Taurus asks Conan to check for any signs that guards may be following. And it does flash across Conan's mind. Oh, hang on a minute, what's he up to? And he goes into this chamber, whereas Conan does as he asks. And says something about there was no need to do that. Mm. Yeah, but he does it anyway, because yeah. he's probably a little bit um, in awe of this Prince of Thieves. Um, but as it happens, Taurus falls victim to another terrible defender of the tower, which at first Conan's not entirely um, aware of, but he soon finds out the nature of this creature. It was as large as a pig, 
and its eight thick hairy legs drove its ogreish body over the floor at a headlong pace. Its four evilly gleaming eyes shone with a horrible intelligence, and its fangs dripped venom that Conan knew from the burning of his shoulder where only a few drops had splashed as the thing struck and missed, was laden with swift death. This was the killer that had dropped from its perch in the middle of the ceiling on a strand of its web on the neck of the Nemedian. Fools that they were not to have suspected the upper chambers would be guarded as well as the lower. Oh, spiders. <laughs> I don't know how much you like spiders. I hate spiders. But what 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 proceeds is, is a description of a, a fight which is classic Howard. Um, it's exciting, it's breathless, it's mm. vivid. This is where Howard is more prone to describing fights in a greater degree of detail because he basically spends a page talking about Conan fighting this hugely intelligent spider and fighting back and forth and really coming close to coming a cropper on a couple of occasions Yeah. until he throws a massive treasure chest on it and smashes it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just brilliant. It's classic Conan. If you could, fuck off, Sam Gamgees. If you're going to kill a giant spider, <laughs> smash it with a treasure chest. That's the way to do a spider in. And I won't have it any other way. It's just brilliant. Eventually, Conan finds the heart of the elephant, yeah. the jewel. But he also finds the terrible occupant of the tower, an ancient elephant-headed creature, which at first he's pretty wildly freaked out about. Um, but he soon finds he has nothing to fear from the creature. Tears rolled from the sightless eyes, and Conan's gaze strayed to the limbs stretched on the marble couch. And he knew the monster would not rise to attack him. He knew the marks of the rack and the searing brand of the flame, and tough-souled as he was, he stood aghast at the ruined deformities which his reason told him had once been limbs as comely as his own. And suddenly all fear and repulsion went from him to be replaced by a great pity. What this monster was, Conan could not know, but the evidences of his suffering were so terrible and pathetic that a strange aching sadness came over the Sumerian, and he knew not why. He only felt that he was looking upon a cosmic tragedy, and he shrank with shame, as if the guilt of a whole race were laid upon him. And this this is a, another great example of what a character Conan is. He's got no qualms whatsoever about butchering some dickhead in a pub who took the piss out of him. But he has a massive code of ethics that would, wouldn't see a creature, no matter how powerful, enslaved and tortured for the benefit of others. And that tends over the course of the stories to be his biggest bugbear, civilization. Pursuit of power. And his first thought is to leave. Yeah. Because he started to leave. So all thoughts have gone of greed and wealth and... That's right. It was just to go and leave this poor creature. Yeah. But the creature before he leaves entreats Conan to enable its revenge on the Yara the Sorcerer and asks him to cut out his heart as part of the plan. And Conan, he does so, he cuts out this poor creature's heart, squeezes its blood on the jewel yeah. and then delivers it to the Sorcerer with a message from the creature, and witnesses the end, the quite terrifying end of Yara. Um, this sorcerer we only really know for a page. We know his, his but we know that his, his actions were pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, and then he flees the tower before it collapses. All the guards are dead, and he leaves empty-handed, having carried out an act of great pity. Yeah. Which is terrific. And Terrific like, writing. Yeah, oh, fantastic. But like you said, the we only get to see this sorcerer for a page and a half. Mm. But when he goes into the room and he's 
drug-addled on the... Was it the Lotus? Yeah. And then he says to him, wake, awaken. Mm. And he instantly his face changes and become evil. Mm. And you know straight away what yeah. sort of person he is. Yeah. Yeah, he's... In, in, in Robert E. Howard land, sorcerers and sorcery and magic are either... Magic is either ancient and cosmic... Or it's evil and it's done by evil men and they pursue power through evil means in order to gain the opportunity to do it through recognize, through realising ancient power and knowledge. And Conan hates magic, hates sorcery. That's right, and all sorcerers are evil. And they do a pretty good job of that, actually, in the movie. Um, yes, they with do. With Fulsa Doom. And funnily enough, the movie did actually pop into my head at one point when um, when I read... Um, that little bit of um, dialogue when he's met Taurus, and I almost said it in a in, in a cod Arnie accent, which would have been particularly terrible. <laughs> I'm sure I might give it a go though. Who are you? He whispered. Conan, a Sumerian. I came seeking a way to steal Yara's jewel that men call the Elephant's Heart. But you know what? It, uh, the temptation was there for a second, but yeah. Conan and Arnold Schwarzenegger no. is an entirely different character. Much as I love the Conan the Barbarian movie, although for different reasons. And um, I will apologise to anybody listening for that absolutely appalling Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. So th- this is a, a really, really great example, I think, of, of a couple of things. One, of what an, what an interesting character Conan is, because he's generally, generally believed to be like sort of a, a lunk-headed, muscle-bound caricature, which is probably partially the fault of the films, maybe partially the fault of the comics, but is a lot more nuanced and interesting in the books but also that Michael Moorcock and Robert E. Howard their writing styles for me are the two most vivid, exciting, fast paced and forward driving kinds of fantasy That and it's the type of stuff I really really like Yeah, I mean with regards to Michael Moorcock I would love to see on the big screen Elric, mm-hmm. Ericos mm-hmm. and Coram and some of the others mm. And it's interesting what you say about Arnold Schwarzenegger because at first, having never read this before, I didn't realise that the Barbarian was going to be Conan. Oh, right. So when you were reading it and it's talking about the Barbarian, because of the description, you didn't think it was Conan. So I liked the the creation I got in my head. Yeah. And when it turned out it was, I couldn't then see, see it as Arnie at all. Yeah. Because I had... Built up a different picture for myself. Mm. Oh, that's really and interesting. And I like that. Yeah. Well, you know those dark horse collections I was collecting for quite a while? Yeah. So, some of the artwork that was done in some of those, uh, Queen of the Black Curse and, and a couple of others, he's quite live and slim. Um, and in some ways, I think the representation of Conan the Barbarian in the Jason Momoa film was in many... I think it was a better representation of Conan, even though I don't think it's as good a film as the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian film. I yeah. love that. That it's, it's a different interpretation of the character. I love the movie, but that movie, really, it's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I think Jason Momoa was very, very good yes. as Conan, even though he was perhaps a little bit young, but he's got charisma to burn. And that's the thing about Conan. Conan, in the, in the course of the stories, okay, he, he's, he's a barbarian as a youth, but he becomes a thief, a pirate, he speaks numerous languages. Eventually, he does attain power, and becomes even to the point of becoming the king of a nation, yeah. but he loses that power almost as quickly, but never does it not on his own terms. 
he's intelligent, he's a survivor, he can turn his hand to anything, he speaks multiple languages, he's charismatic. He's got honesty yeah. and the fact that his first thought wasn't kill the poor creature, take the stone, yeah. was I'm going to help him. Yeah. Didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. He has a humanity yeah. and that's probably from his starting life, his yeah. life up to that point. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was really, really good reading this again because it's probably the first time I've read The Tower of the Elephant for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. But I, I enjoyed that as much as I've been enjoying reading any of the, the Michael Moorcock stuff. And I think what, what this has is, is, um, told me is that as we continue with the podcast, we are going to be occasionally dropping in other bits and pieces. You know, it's, it's a shame Robert E. Howard never got to do more because, of course, he killed himself at 30. But also, from the Appendix N podcast, there was that terrific what-if the, the Appendix N podcast interview with Michael Moorcock, Michael says that at one point he almost wrote a Conan short story for a collection. Really? And that, for me, is possibly the greatest what-if in fantasy fiction. Yeah. What if Michael Moorcock had written a Conan story? No matter how throwaway, no matter how brief, for a collection, it would have. I would have loved to have read it. So. so, if you're listening, Michael, and I share a birthday with you. <laughs> For your birthday next year. <laughs> yeah. For Phil's birthday next year, can we please have a Michael Moorcock Conan story? How about that? <laughs> sounds fantastic. Yeah, that sounds good. Right, well, that was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, however, I think you've definitely earned your birthday cocktails. Yay! So we're going to wrap it up for now. I'm going to get this edited and we'll get it uploaded. And then we're off down the moon and sixpence for a bucket of white Russian. Thanks to everybody that's contributed. Thanks to all of our patrons and again our new patrons, Malpertius and David. Um, it's, uh, it's been a really enjoyable process interacting with you all and getting your thoughts and feelings. Thanks to the pastor for sending that brilliant video. We'll pop that on, on the blog. And, uh, well, we'll see you on the Moonbeam Rods. Goodbye.